0: It's not at all uncommon for people to have struggles in their purpose in life and figuring out what that is. In fact, we refer to struggles of this sort as existential crises, points in people's lives where they try to figure out, why am I here? What am I for? You may have heard the term midlife crisis, which refers to a point in time when somebody has Uh, to their understanding, fewer days in their future than they have in their past, and they're trying to figure out if they have yet found what their purpose is and if their life is actually being utilized for that. For others, it happens earlier, maybe in teen years, maybe in the early 20s. Maybe you've experienced something like this when you were trying to find yourself, figure out, why am I here? What am I supposed to go and do? One of the great privileges of the Christian life is that we are explicitly instructed by God's word in our purpose. We are assigned a mission. We exist to bring glory to God. It's what we're here for. And when we talk about this, oftentimes we we can even talk about the longevity of this purpose. We can say that we exist to glory in God, bring Him glory, to enjoy Him forever. And oftentimes when we talk about this, we think about eternity because we are to do this forever and ever and ever and ever. We are to bring glory to His holy name for eternity. And I said for eternity, not merely in eternity. In other words, we're not waiting for some future day in which we can finally bring glory to God. We're to do that every moment of every day of our lives. This means that as people dedicated to God, we are to wake up in the morning and start our days asking God, good morning, God, what can I do to please you today? We are to throughout our days leverage and maximize all of our decisions for his great glory. Father, what can I do in this situation that would please you most? Even when we stumble, we're to, we're to get up and repent before the Lord, ask Him for forgiveness, and seek to grow. Even when we experience God's creation and the wonder of the things around us, we're to, we're to revel in Him. and God, you are awesome, what you make and what you create. But you probably know that the bad news is that the deck is wholly stacked against you. In other words, everything in this world that is not fully devoted to God is intended to break your focus on Him. It's to distract you from Him. Whether it be the world whom Jesus says hates Him and wants you to hate Him too, or if it's the spiritual realm, the, the, the powers and principalities that work in a realm that we cannot see in order to break our attention and focus and worship towards God. Even your own flesh, your body is your enemy. It's literally killing you day by day and spiritually wants to do the same. And so that's the bad news. The bad news is that everything stacked against you, everything that you do in every day is going to be impacted in some way by an attempt to keep you from doing your greatest purpose, fulfilling your mission before God. There are even specifically Christian distractions. The kinds of things that as believers, the New Testament specifically warns us about that are kind of unique to Christians. It's not like we evade this once you become a Christian. So it's not as all the Christians in this room go, I remember when I once struggled. I remember when I once had to effort to focus on God. No, you know, things like civilian pursuits, as Paul would say. Things like endless... Discussions and debates about myths and genealogies that crowd out the attention of our minds, self made religion, human precepts, asceticism, all of these things we are warned against because, as the enemy knows, any distraction will do. Even in Christmas time, we don't look around and say, well, this, this is a month where everyone in our world, in our culture, is celebrating an event that we trace back to Christ, his birth. Aha, see, ha! So the enemy snoozes, he takes a break for the month and goes, well, everything's about Jesus this month, so no need to distract. Of course not, you know. that perhaps in many ways, now more than ever, the distractions are all around us. But here's the good news. While the bad news is that everything around us seeks to break our focus from Christ, the good news is that we have been supplied with ammunition in this war In God's Word to help us. That's what I want to do for you this morning. I just want to help you with some of the distractions that we're going to particularly face in this time of year. I'm just going to share with you a passage of Scripture from Matthew chapter 9. It records an interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist's disciples. It's a real short several verses, but it contains both a warning and a challenge. That's all I hope to do today is just read through this text. I want to explain it to you, and I want to dig out and offer up to you a warning and a challenge from this text. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 9, and I'll begin just by reading verses 14 through 17. I'll pray, and then we'll dive a little deeper into the parts and pieces of it. Let's do that. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, if it is, the skins burst and the whole, the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's pray. Father, this morning we read through these words of Jesus, this short interaction He has with John's disciples, Father, and perhaps people that we could relate to in some way. It seems are those who knew they needed to repent of sin, they needed to a clear a way for uh, Christ, prepare a way for the Lord. Uh, they wanted to hear from Jesus as we do today. And so, Father, I pray that we would gain help and insight in much the same way that they did. Uh, Lord, I know that we are constantly at battle, trying to do the things that honor you most. And Father, not just modify our behaviors, but Father, much more challenging we need the help of our hearts to be especially attuned to you. And so, Lord, that is impossible for us to do on our own. We are in desperate need of your Holy Spirit to do a work inside of us. And so I pray this very morning that by the power of your word, you would do that great work and that it would be a lasting work that would continue beyond the, the, the moments of this sermon and our gathering and fellowship today, uh, but even into the rest of this week. Uh, the recognition of these things would continue. Some learning take hold. And that there would be some lessons that we can gain that would serve us well in our battle. And so we ask for these things. We appeal to you, our Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Let's go back to the beginning of this encounter again. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, sometimes in Jesus' life, the Jewish leaders, particularly the Pharisees, they came and they challenged Jesus, and they sometimes even challenged His followers on matters of the law and tradition. And oftentimes, those challenges were not the least bit sincere. In other words, they didn't really care about the answer to the question so much. They simply wanted to test or challenge Jesus and oftentimes get Him in trouble with His audience. Luke tells us in this account that the Pharisees were a part of this conversation. Matthew just says that it is John's disciples that are leading in the question, asking, evidently, they were curious of the same things. And so, at the very least, being that this is from John's disciples, we can suspect that there's a bit of sincerity involved. And so Jesus gives them a sincere answer. They're asking Jesus about the practice of ritual fasting. Now, there were many ceremonial laws in the Old Testament that were a part of that Old Covenant. The relationship that God had with His people then. Those ritual forms that were designed to point to spiritual realities. Some were directly commanded by God through Moses. But there were other rituals that developed over time. They were simply artifacts of human tradition, they kind of clung and stuck to the old covenant like barnacles on the bottom of a ship. They went wherever the ship went, but they weren't actually a part of it. For many Jews in Jesus' day, whether it be the disciples of John or the Pharisees, the law of God and the rules of men had become so intertwined that they were nearly indistinguishable from one another. And we see this dealt with oftentimes in Jesus' ministry. People are trying to figure out how the human tradition works into the law, and they just kind of consider them one, and Jesus spends a lot of his ministry pulling those apart, unpacking those things. And just to be clear, the fact that those traditions developed so fully that they came around and kind of encrusted themselves around the law, that is not a good thing. In many cases, those human rules were manipulated By people in order to judge others. And in some cases, those human traditions even contradicted the law of God. One particularly pointed time that Jesus deals with this error is in Mark chapter 7. He says this, In vain do the people worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So you get it? There was the law and there was tradition. And oftentimes those were even in direct contradiction. You, you threw out God's law in order to do man's tradition. Now back to fasting here, the specific issue being raised. There was only one specifically commanded, publicly observed fast under the Old Covenant. It was during the Day of Atonement. Now, later in Jewish history, even after the days of Christ, leading up to even to our own day, Jews will adopt several more fast days in the year. Right now, Orthodox Jews celebrate about half a dozen of those fast days. But in the Old Testament, only one day was explicitly called out. One point in Jewish time, in a calendar. Beyond that, all fasting was supposed to be entirely voluntary, not compulsory, not, hey, the calendar says, no, fasting to be sure took place, but it was only voluntary, and not only that, but it was intended to be private. Jesus once told a parable of a Pharisee who claimed out loud to regularly fast two times a week, which is, consider that. 100 times more than the requirement. And in that particular parable, that Pharisee was talking about how godly and righteous he was that God should hear his prayers because I fast 100 times more than the average publican, the average person on the street. Jesus even dealt with that hypocrisy a few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 6. He specifically calls out some of the issues that they had with fasting. He says in Matthew 6.18 that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So with this practice commonly observed among the Jews, John's disciples were curious as to why they don't see Jesus' disciples doing it. They look around, they go, we see a lot of these religious guys, and look, they're fasting all the time, and they clearly take God seriously. Jesus, we think you take God seriously. Why aren't you doing what we see them do and what we have started doing? And so this is Jesus' answer. Look at verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now I find this a little bit of a curious answer especially in light of what he said three chapters earlier about letting your fasts be private. Because he could have answered this question by simply saying, the reason you don't see us fasting is because you shouldn't see anyone fasting. But that's not how he answers. It's not what he says, because that's not the real answer to the question in this moment. Jesus explains by this that there is a time for fasting. That's what he says again. The and then they will fast. He's the bridegroom. His church is the bride. The day will come where he will no longer be with us on earth in physical form, walking around with his disciples like that before his second coming. Then they will fast. But while he was with them, they would not. There is a right time and place for fasting. Now, just in case there's any uh, confusion, fasting is the intentional abstaining from a typical practice for a specific period of time. And by typical practice, in the Bible, that's typically abstaining from work or sexual activity with one's spouse or even eating. And that's most commonly what we think about when we talk about fasting today. That's what shows up the most. And this is done in order to focus more intently on specific needs in a prayer. It's a way to especially cry out to God when His guidance is needed. But it's important to note, fasting is not fun. It's uncomfortable. Fasting is not intended to be fun. In fact, of all the times in the Old Testament that fasting is is referenced, if you look back and read those over and over, oftentimes it's specifically just referred to as afflicting oneself or humbling oneself, placing oneself in an intentionally uncomfortable, undesirable position. Why? In order for your physical sense to match the soul's cry and need for something from God. So, David will do this when his enemies are surrounding him, he's in a cave. He's not like, This is awesome. I love this God. And I also love being hungry. No, he afflicts his stomach to match his heart. God, I need you. If you don't show up, I'm going to die. That's why it's called that. It's an act of mourning. It's an act of humility. It's an act of somberness. And it is fitting for the times when people are weeping and in sorrow and in need for God. They need to hear from him. They need to feel his presence. But Jesus' disciples were not in that season. They heard from God every day. They were in the presence of God every morning they woke up and Jesus was there. And that's exactly what he says. How can can they mourn, fast, mourn? How can they do that when I'm right here? The day will come where I won't be right here with them in the same way, and that's when they will fast. At this point, I just want to pause and, and provide the warning that I think we can gain from this particular passage. I said there was going to be one warning and one challenge, and here's the warning. You and I, are just as susceptible to letting religious traditions crowd out their God-intended purpose, as were these Jews. We are just as susceptible to letting those things take over the clear and explicit commands of God. Fasting, just like any other spiritual practice, it had a purpose. It was designed for something. But in Jesus' day, the people had gotten confused as to its purpose. And so as a result, the practice of fasting became little more than ritual performance. It even became the basis of judgment for others. People gained religious points in others' eyes for doing it. And you and I must be warned that we can do the very same thing with any spiritual practice. What is generosity? What is giving for? At Christmas time, it's not uncommon for Christians to go, man, we want to be especially generous. The whole world talks about that give uh, donation time. It just happens to be the end of a tax year, so people think that way even more. What's the purpose of it? The purpose of giving is not purely and merely to provide for somebody else, but it's mostly an act of worship because God loves a cheerful giver. What is Bible reading for? It's not merely for gaining knowledge. It's not merely to check the box on your Bible app. Ah, I got through all the texts today. No, it's for relating to God. It's to gain instruction in righteousness, training, correction, to grow closer to it. What's evangelism for? Worship. The reason that we evangelize is not just simply because we love the intrinsic value of a person so much we want them to be in heaven. We may want that and should want that, but that's not the highest aim. The highest aim is that God deserves worship from every set of lips on the planet. And those people are not bringing him worship. We want to go be a part of them engaging in the glorification of God. There's so many wonderful things that we're told to do in the Bible. But if we don't understand the chief purpose for those things, we're going to run into the exact kind of error than these people would. All of those kinds of good things, prayer... Bible reading, fellowship, hospitality, evangelism, all of these things, you need to be aware, can be and have been used as point systems in religious circles, as though Christian living were a competitive sport. And that's what it has become in Judaism by the time we get to Jesus' day. I dealt with this last week in John Uh, Chapter 5, as we were wrapping up that, that chapter, the Pharisees, they couldn't even have full faith in God because they did not honor the Old Testament. They did not see Jesus and the purpose for the reading of the Old Testament word, pointing to Him. You and I must know the purposes. You know, I want you to consider Christmas traditions in light of this idea. Remembering special events in redemptive history is wonderful. In fact, there's precedent set for it in Scripture. There's precedent not only set for God saying, remember this day, remember this day, remember this day, specifically commanded days. There's also precedent set in Scripture of the people saying, hey, we're just going to remember this wonderful day. And apart from God explicitly telling them to, erecting an Ebenezer, hey, we're going to remember on this day. This is what God did. We'll tell our kids when they walk by this monument, hey, we put that there generations ago because God showed up. Times like in the book of Esther, when the people were, were uh, redeemed out of the hands of their enemies, when they almost were wiped off the map, God rescued them out of that. And they said, guess what? For, for the rest of our days, we're just going to remember that God did this. And so for us as believers today go, we can't, we can't not want to celebrate that the God of the universe came into this world to save sinners. And so we established wonderful days like Christmas. And even, even, even if the debate over whether or not that's the exact date, that's as good a date as any. And it probably is pretty darn close. And so we say, we want to remember. We want to celebrate. We want the whole month, that time, to, to remember this amazing miracle that took place on our behalf here. But, 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 we must not let our human traditions crowd out the meaning of these celebrations. Do you know why Amazon and Target and Starbucks and Walgreens, do you know why they don't use the word Christmas in their holiday marketing this time of year? Because they don't love Christ. I bring this up because I do see many believers get up in arms about this. And I tend to bring this up every other Christmas or so because it's a continued cycle repeating a refrain from Christians. Ah, they're taking Christ out of Christmas. Christ has been gone from Christmas for them for generations. And for Christians to just ache for them, you better say Christmas. Why do you want them to just devoid of any spiritual meaning, invoke the name of Christ in order to get marketing dollars? How is that not just wanting the world to engage in human tradition. The more non-believers do this, the worse it is. It is of no spiritual benefit whatsoever for people who don't know and love the Lord, particularly those who boldly profess hatred for God and His Word, to use His name to sell products and services. We have to be careful of thinking about human tradition and pause and go, Who, what do we want out of this season? What do we want for ourselves? What do we want for others? We ought not want just more, hum- more human tradition around this day for the world. We must want something much, 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 much deeper. Listen, if you want people to celebrate Christmas and say Merry Christmas, then you need to pray for their hearts, evangelize their souls, proclaim the gospel to them, that they on their own, through the knowledge that Christ has come to die for their sins, they couldn't not celebrate Christmas. That's how we solve that problem. If you celebrate Christmas with trees and lights and presents, go for it, but don't let this month pass by without especially focusing on and thanking God for sending his son. If you have kids, if you have little kids, and they get to the end of the Christmas season, and they don't know what mommy and daddy has taught them about why we celebrate this season, let that be a reminder. Whoa, hey, let's, something's crowding us out. And it's really easy to see it in kids, isn't it? Because if they got one present from one person on Christmas morning, what are they going to be thinking about for that month? present. And so how great to use that moment to try to remember, leverage your Christmas season and all of your traditions to honor Christ as worthy of celebrating, but be on guard to never let those traditions take on a gravity of their own. John's disciples totally missed the purpose of fasting. They totally missed it. The Pharisees clearly had missed it. It's a little more surprising John's disciples did. And so that's why they had this question, and that's why Jesus kindly offers the answer. Listen, because fasting, fasting is to help you feel closer to God, and I'm right here. And now Jesus takes the opportunity to continue. He doesn't pause. He doesn't stop. Got it? That's the answer? Because I'm here. Someday I'll be gone, then they'll fast. Don't worry, it's coming. End of conversation. No, Jesus takes the moment. To explain how his coming impacts not only the ritual forms, like fasting, ritual fasting is in mind, but the whole Old Covenant itself. Look at verses 16 through 17. This is what Jesus says. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Okay, what Jesus is talking about here is the new covenant and the old covenant. Now, just real quick, this isn't in the notes, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. When we're talking about Old Covenant, New Covenant, we're talking about the promises that God made uniquely with His people in the time before Christ and the promises that God makes uniquely with His people after the coming of Christ. The time before, all of those promises and the unique ceremonial and ritual religious ways that they worked together were to point to the coming, His first coming, and to prepare for His first coming... And all of the New Testament, the new covenant promises and ritual forms and ceremony are to point to His second coming, to prepare for His second coming. And so that's why even when we read 1 Corinthians 11, wherever we take communion, there's a new covenant. Important point. We're told that this is the proclamation of the Lord's death until He returns. That's what for. It's for. In other words, these uniquely new covenant things will make way for the newer covenant when we finally get into heaven someday, and we won't experience baptism in the new heavens and the new earth, and communion will be fulfilled in its entirety by the time we arrive. The laws and the practices of the new order do not fit into the old order. I wonder if you've ever had a patch that you needed to sew onto uh, some article of clothing If you've ever tried to wash uh, the article of clothing after sewing a new patch onto uh, the pre-washed article, it will mess it up because over time, those need to wear together. You can't put new on old. That's the first illustration that he's using. You don't put a a new piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. You have to make sure you match those together. And he uses the second illustration of wine. New wine, old wineskins. And the image there, of course, is just the vessel that held the wine. If you put the new wine into the old skins, they'd crack and break, and then both are ruined. The wine's ruined, and then it destroys the wineskin. But the new wine's put into fresh wineskins. And of course, what he's talking about here is the new and the old covenant. In order for Jesus to establish the new order, he has to fulfill the old one. He says as much in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, Old Testament, Old Covenant. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So in other words, it's not as though God tried really hard to relate with people in the Old Testament, and they just couldn't get it, and didn't work well, and he goes, okay, forget it, do over, do over. Let's just abolish that one. Wipe the slate clean, hit the reset button, start over. No, 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 That was never the intent. It was always supposed to be temporary, fulfilled in Christ at his first coming to make way for a new covenant. And now that Christ has come, now that he has fulfilled the old covenant, he establishes a new one that supersedes the old. Hebrews 8.13 even uses stronger language. It says this, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. In other words, we do not relate to God any longer through the uniquely old covenant promises. The ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, I'm not meaning the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, the ways that we're supposed to honor God and one another, those of course stand, they're universal, they're not unique to one particular covenant. But the ceremonial laws, the temple and the sacrifices and all of those particular feast days that are supposed to be honored in order to relate to God in that particular time, those have been superseded by a new and better covenant. The old covenant was designed to be temporary. God had planned in eternity past that Jesus would come at just the right time and he would bring forth the new set of promises to replace the old. And this is what Jesus is meaning by putting new wine into old wineskins. The ritual forms of the Old Covenant. All the ceremonies and practices. They were made to hold the Old Covenant itself. That's what they were for. They matched. But those ritual forms are not suitable for, not fitting for the New Covenant. Why do we no longer practice animal sacrifice today? Because Christ fulfilled that. And for us to sacrifice animals would be saying, your sacrifice, Jesus, is not enough, you see? Those new rituals, ceremonies, religious practices point to the realities of our new covenant. We talk about those most specifically, baptism, Communion, those things that talk about our new life in Christ. And Jesus was here, was talking most specifically about the spiritual realities. But the principle extends even further than that. That new does not fit into old. In order for the new order to come in, the old had to go. And this is exactly what the rulers of Jesus' day knew to be true. You know the answer to this. Why was Herod so freaked out by Jesus' birth? When the wise men come and they go, we're here to see the king of the Jews. He's like, right here. No, 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 he's a little guy. He should be somewhere else. He's just born. Why was Herod freaked out? Obvious answer, everybody knows, because he knows that if the new king has come, he's out of a job. There's only one throne in Jerusalem and it's not a two-seater. He knows that the coming of one king abrogates him. He's kicked out. He's gone. This is why he was willing to take on the political risk of killing a bunch of Hebrew boys, babies. Because he was so hell-bent on retaining his power. And he knew he couldn't share it. He wouldn't share it. Herod knew that when the new comes, the old must go. The Pharisees knew it. The Pharisees knew that when the new comes, the old must go. This is actually why they resisted Jesus so ferociously. They loved the old order. They were made great under their old order, which again, old order for them was God's law plus their human traditions that just so happened to fit exactly what they were doing. They designed the new point system. And what do you know? We're winning. The Pharisees knew it. They especially loved the corrupted version of the old that was encrusted with the barnacles of human tradition. John the Baptist warns about this much. He says this in Matthew chapter 3. He says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And what was he talking about there? The Pharisees and their whole contaminated religious system. In Matthew 27, we even see Pilate... This Roman leader in the day, he says he knew that it was out of envy that the Pharisees had delivered Jesus up. They envied him. They knew that he couldn't have power and them have power. He couldn't have authority and them have authority. Jesus couldn't reign as religious supreme and they still be considered religiously supreme. Their envy even extended beyond their hatred for Jesus' disciples. In Acts chapter 5, it says that they went after and uh, beat and uh, eventually ended up pursuing and trying to kill off Christians. Why? Because they were filled with jealousy and they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Jealousy. It wasn't concern for the religious good of their nation. They were jealous. We thought we took care of this already. Jesus has been killed. He's out of the scene right now, and now these apostles are around, and they're healing people left and right, and they were jealous because they could not occupy the same place at the same time. They knew, the Pharisees knew, that when the new comes in, the old has to go, and they were unwilling to bend and to yield. This is why Jesus says, remember the the leaven of the Pharisees. Be warned, be cautioned about the leaven of them. What What did the Jews think about with leaven? They had to purge it from their homes. Because you cannot embrace both the teaching of the Pharisees and the teaching of Christ. They're mutually exclusive. One way of living must make way for the other. And just in case there's any question about this, even Satan and the demons know this, that when the new comes, the old must go. They were petrified of encountering Jesus. Every place he stepped foot, he gained territory that they once occupied. No, do not destroy us until the coming time. He's in charge anywhere he goes. Jesus even says of Satan, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Why? Because the new ruler has come. Mark 3, Jesus even tells us about a strong man. He says he comes to bind the strong man, Satan, in order to plunder his goods and make them his own. Why? Because Jesus doesn't come to share the world with Satan. He comes to take what is rightfully his. For the new to come, the old must go. And sometimes it seems that Christ's enemies understand this truth more fully than even his followers. So I want you to consider for a moment what this means for us. Here's the challenge. I offered you a warning before. Don't let the human traditions crowd out the religious realities, the true spiritual realities of the things we've been given. Here's the challenge In your life, make way for Christ. Make way for Christ. Why did John the Baptist come? You remember? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Why? Because they weren't prepared. That's why he came, to herald the coming of Christ, to prepare for his coming. There's this incredibly beautiful reality about the spiritual life of a believer in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's one of those memory verses you, you may have accumulated over time if you've been in church life or been a believer for a long time. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New creation. It means you were created, now you're made new. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. New creation, old has passed away, new has come. Does that mean you're perfect now in all of your physical realities? No, this is a spiritual reality. You have been made new. That's why, for the rest of your days, you're you're supposed to be living as the new creation. You're to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The old must go. This must be embraced. The ways of the old life are not fitting for the new life in Christ. If you're not a believer here today or if you're not sure what you'd call yourself, you maybe consider Christ, you you think the Bible's probably got truth in it, you believe that there's a God, you're trying to figure things out in this regard, you need to know this. We don't want you just to simply add Jesus to your life. He's not a badge on your spiritual vest that faces outwards so everyone else can see and then give you, ah, more points for you. You got that Jesus badge. No, something's got to go. So he can come. We want for you to have all the old life gone and the new life come. We want for you to, biblical language, repent and turn in faith to Jesus. No longer submit to or follow any other God, any other highest authority, any other greatest affection or pursuit. Whatever that is has to go to make way for him. You see, God sent his only son. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And he comes and lives this perfect life and he fulfills all the law perfectly. You didn't, He did. And at the end of His ministry life, He goes to the cross to be sacrificed. It's a sacrifice. It's not just an execution. It's a sacrifice that He would bleed so you don't have to. He would die so you don't have to. That He would bear the punishment for sins. And if you repent of your sin and put your faith in Him alone, you have eternal life. And as he raised from the dead three days later, you too will raise to new life spiritually at the moment you believe and physically at the end of the age. And that's what we want for you. We want for you to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Christ. We invite you to that today. Don't leave until you pray to the Christian today. But the old wineskin must go. New wine is for new wineskins. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified, Christ and it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Crucified with Christ. No longer you, now it's him. All the old gone, the new here. So bringing this in for a landing, come back to Christmas with me. I was thinking about this when my wife and I were decorating for Christmas a few weeks ago. It's kind of our ritual. Uh, day after Thanksgiving, we decorate the whole house. It's a super fun time. We love doing it. Mostly, mostly. Some parts hard. Little kids love to break ornaments. That's always fun. But when we take, the, take Christmas out of the boxes and put it up, we take the fall decor down and put the Christmas decor up, Right? Something goes to make way for something new coming in. And one of the things we've kind of done as a ritual over time is we'll go through the kids' closets in December. Uh, We'll we'll clear out all the old clothes that don't fit them anymore. We'll clear out all the old toys they haven't played with all year round uh, to make way for grandparents are going to bring new toys, they're going to get some new clothes to go in there, and we're making space. You you probably have some similar ritual, whether or not you do it on the same day of the year. But I've found over time... My kids sometimes will go into the closet and I'll find this toy that's broken. They haven't touched it in at least a year. Since the last Christmas purge, somehow it survived. And it's someone in there and they pull it out. They go, no, no, don't throw out the broken Barbie. What's going on there? Our flesh clings to the clutter. We become emotionally attached to the stuff that's just a part of that closet. You know, when you get saved, when you go from being... Not a believer. To a believer, you have faith in Christ, and you put your faith in him alone for salvation. It's like inviting Jesus into your home to live with you. And not only that, but to have authority. And the rest of your life is you walking through that home with him, and he gets to open every cabinet, every closet, every door, every room, and clear out the clutter. That's what it means to make him king of your life, lord of your life. He gets to go through and go, nope, this is old wineskin. No, this, 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 is, this is old wine. Old garment, you make way for something better, and that's what we need to do with Christ. We must purge everything that will not aid us in our new Christian life. You want to change your spiritual life, spiritual mood? Are you in a season where you're aching for growth? You're like, okay, I just I want to I want to aim towards the next season of spiritual growth and maturity. I want to be sanctified. Well, something's got to go. To prepare for whatever you hope the Lord to do in the future, how good it is for the soul to begin that season by clearing something else out. Get ruthless with the clutter. You may have hobbies that are not helping you love God and people more. Maybe music or movies or media or social media consumption that's setting up shop in your mind taking up brain waves energy attention minutes maybe hours maybe lots of hours maybe some of that's got to go maybe there're toxic people in your life that are a hindrance to your spiritual growth people who you're putting yourself in their way when when you ought not this person's not helping me this person's harming my spiritual growth maybe maybe your schedule is so packed out you have no margin built in there no time to expect the holy spirit to move no space for hospitality for fellow believers or, or the non-believer that is in your community somehow that may have a need and you're, you're so busy with all the other things maybe maybe what you need to do is clear out some of your calendar and just ask Lord I want to I want to make way for you somehow here maybe bad habits maybe overt sins but Christians we must make room for Jesus a really awesome and notable line of a one of my favorite Christmas hymns. We're going to sing in just a moment. You might have even been thinking of it as I've been saying some of this. It's joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Remember the next line? Let every heart prepare him room. That's what we're going to sing now, and it's my hope and my prayer for our church this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we See in your word a continued warning to not take the good things you've given us in any covenant, old covenant, new covenant, Father, and attach our own human thinking and traditions to those things and gets out of control. And Father, the enemy loves to leverage those wrong views against us and weaponize them against one another. Help us to not be like the Pharisees, not even like the disciples of John who were confused about something so fundamental as fasting. Help us as believers to love your word, to seek what it teaches and says about how we're to relate to you, to trust in the new covenant promises, to not add anything to them as though they were the promises themselves. Father, we, we need that warning. Caution us from that. Help us to purge anything that shouldn't already be there. And Father, in like manner, we, we, we are challenged by the need to make room for Jesus. God, we fully acknowledge, and I acknowledge this right now, Christ so often just kicks in the door without invite, breaks down the door and makes the changes that will destroy us if he doesn't. And it is a kindness for him to do that. It is a kindness for the Holy Spirit to override our evil desires so often that we would Turn to what is true and what is just and what is right. And God, we are so grateful that that is true. But Lord, we want to cooperate with you. We want to purge the old out of the house in that illustration of our lives. And we want to make room for Christ. And so Father, I just pray that you would help us find wherever those obstacles, those distractions, that clutter remains in our lives, and help us to remove those things a little bit at a time so that we can see you advance more and more in our lives, that that would be evident to the other believers around us as we strengthen them and they strengthen us. And as we seek to reach the lost, Father, that more would join us in bringing you glory and seeking to become more like your son throughout all of our days until we see you face to face. And we pray these things in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen.